0: Open your Bibles together to the second chapter of Acts. If you're joining us by audio or video podcast, welcome to you. This is message number two in a new series entitled Life on Mission with Woodburn Baptist Church. My name is Tim Harris, and I ask you to open your Bible to Acts chapter 2. Now, before we go to Acts chapter 2, uh, I've had Matt Betts preaching the same sermon to me for probably two months about the book of Acts. He's been in the Book of Acts longer than I have, literally, in preparation for this series. And Matt has continued to say over and over and over to me that you can't rush from Acts chapter 1 to Acts chapter 2. And that's always the tendency of the church. It's a tendency of all of us. We blow right past Acts chapter 1 and go too quickly into Acts chapter 2. Matt Betts, what happens when the church, when people rush too quickly out of Acts chapter one You're not ready for the power of God. yeah you Absolutely, You're not ready. I mean, Jesus said you'll receive power, but for now, you go, you wait, you, you pray, you, you stay there. And, and unfortunately, as a church in, in general, not just Woodburn, but I think all over the place, we're not very good at simply waiting for the Lord. We like to move on our own. We like to do our thing and then just hope He'll follow along and He'll come with us and bless us. But no, the word is to wait, to, 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 to get ready. It's an amazing thing that happens in that upper room as they wait. They they become unified in spirit, in one accord. That doesn't happen accidentally. It doesn't happen easily. You put 120 people in a room and wait for them to begin to think with one mind and feel with one heart. That is a miracle there in itself. And some churches like ours, we've been together 150 years and haven't quite ever achieved that kind of oneness. It it comes in the Spirit, and it comes as we wait and as we pray. So you don't automatically fly from Acts chapter 1 into Acts chapter 2, but but this is what happens for them. On the day of Pentecost, it says in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, there's a timeline that Luke has given us, so you can actually sort of see how this happens now. Pentecost um, is a holiday that comes 50 days after Passover, so 50 days have happened. Now, if you follow the something of a timeline in the New Testament, you know that Jesus was crucified sometime around Passover. He was dead, buried, and raised over the course of about three days, okay? and then, And then the Scripture says that he appeared to the disciples over a course of about 40 days. Luke tells us that. So there's a period of about 40 days in there where Jesus is appearing, and it's those appearances that give the convincing, irrefutable proof that he lives. Uh, Multiple appearances where he would just come and go in, in, in and out of the presence of his apostles or disciples. At one point, Paul tells us, over 500 people at once saw him. So it's amazing. But that... Physical presence of Jesus, he comes and goes and appears and teaches and talks about the kingdom for a period of about 40-something days. So that's 40 days plus the three days of his death, burial, and so That's about 43 days. So about how long did they spend in the upper room praying? I was thinking y'all would do the math in your heads while I did all of that, but y'all aren't too good at long story problems. Yeah, About seven days, something like a week that they spent in that upper room just waiting, just watching, just praying, and then the amazing happens. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. I'm not going to read this whole chapter. I, I might, but, but, but I'll, I'll guide you through it as we read. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. At that time, there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. When they heard the loud noise, everyone came running, and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. They were completely amazed. How can this be? They exclaim. These people are all from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. Here we are, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, the province of Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the areas of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. And we all hear these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things God has done. They stood there amazed and perplexed. What can this mean? They asked each other. But others in the crowd ridiculed them, saying, they're just drunk, that's all. Then Peter stepped forward with the 11 other apostles and shouted to the crowd, listen carefully, all of you fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem, make no mistake about this. These people are not drunk, as some of you are assuming. Nine o'clock in the morning is much too early for that. I don't know if that means like, catch them later, they might be, but nine o'clock is too too early for that. No, what you're seeing was predicted long ago by the prophet Joel, who said, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. In those days, I will pour out my spirit, even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy, and I will cause wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and clouds of smoke. The sun will become dark, the moon will turn blood red before that great and glorious day of the Lord arrives. But everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, say it, shall be saved, will be saved. Yeah, now jump over with me. Jump over to uh, verse 41. Peter preaches a a sermon. It's actually not that long. It's an amazing sermon. The first gospel sermon preached. Those who believe, verse 41, those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day, about 3,000. It's on my bucket list, y'all. It's on my bucket list. I I would love to be a part of of a baptismal service where we do 3,000 in one day. That's not impossible. You can't say it's never happened. 3,000 in one day. Verse 42. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. All the believers met together in one place, and they shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day, each day, the Lord added to their number, their fellowship, those who were being saved. Okay, real quickly, I want to take you back into the Old Testament so you can understand something of, of probably what you're meant to read and, and see in, in the day of Pentecost. Uh, you need something of an Old Testament background, which you all have. So, so go with me to Genesis chapter 3. I want you to see a pattern in the Old Testament, a, a pattern in the very beginning. Because it matters. It helps you understand what is represented in, in the day of Pentecost. Genesis chapter 3. not, not going to read all the book of Genesis, although it, it wouldn't hurt us. But Genesis chapter 3, what happens? If you just look at the heading and, and quickly through the scripture, what's happening in Genesis chapter 3? Okay, it's the fall, the, the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, they, they sin in, in the garden, and, and they were banished from the garden, okay? So you're going to see a certain pattern emerge here in the book of Genesis. It's a pattern of, of sin and, and then punishment, and then there's always this sign of grace. It, there is this sort of pattern of curse and, and grace, curse and grace. So Adam and Eve are, are, are cursed because of their sin, but then what happens next? God clothes them, God covers them, which of course would require a sacrifice. So God clothes them in, in animal skins. So there is a sort of sacrifice. God clothes them, uh, which is a sign of grace. He puts clothes on them. And then he actually banishes them from the garden. Now you think that's punishment, but that's not punishment. Why is it that as a sign of his grace, he blocks their access to the tree of life? Do you know? Yeah, because the tree of life was never forbidden. Up to this point, the tree of life was not forbidden. They were free to eat the fruit of the tree of life, which gave them life, sort of eternal life. But now that they have fallen, now that they are separated from God's presence, it would be eternal damnation that they would live forever separated from Him. So now the access to the tree of life is removed that they may not live forever in separation from Him. So there's this pattern now of curse and grace. Now what happens in chapter 4? I mean, you have two, two boys at first. Their names are Cain and Abel. What happens? Yeah. Who kills whom? Yeah, Cain kills Abel. And so what happens? Cain is cursed. You are cursed and banished from the ground, it says in chapter 4, verse 11, which has swallowed your brother's blood. No longer will the ground yield good crops for you, no matter how hard you work. From now on, you'll be a homeless wanderer on the earth. That's the curse. That's the curse. But what happens next? Cain says, I can't take this. My punishment is too great. And so what happens? Grace. Grace. God puts a mark on Cain. We don't know what that mark is, but God puts some sort of mark, which is a mark of protection. In other words, when people see this mark, they'll leave you alone. So, even though Cain is cursed, there is a blessing. There is grace that is shown him. There is curse, but it's followed by grace. Now, Genesis chapter 6, what happens next? This story just keeps going from bad to worse if you read it. Genesis 6, what happens? Whole world gone wrong. What happens? But Noah finds grace in the eyes of the Lord, and what happens? Yeah, Noah builds the ark. The entire world is destroyed by the flood. That's the curse. But then it's followed by what? But by grace. What's the sign of grace after the flood? Yeah, it's the sign of the rainbow and, 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 a, and a, a new covenant confirmed with Noah and his descendants. It's, it's, it's a beautiful story. It's an awful story of curse, destruction, but a, a, again, a beautiful story of grace, a sign of grace. But then Genesis chapter 11 is interesting. What happens there? It's, it's another awful story. The whole world gone wrong. Yeah, this is a story of the Tower of Babel. All of humanity is united. Strangely enough, we all got together on one day anyway to accomplish one thing. And what was the one thing that brought us all together? A construction project where we're just going to build a stairway to heaven. We're going to build a tower that's going to reach heaven. We're going to just go, we're going to storm heaven on our own. You understand? It's this idea that they're going to go to where God is, be like God. All of humanity united in this. So, what happens? There's a curse here. There is, there is a punishment. And what, what happens? What's the curse? Yeah, very interesting. God confuses their speech so that they no longer speak the same language. So, so the curse is this, this incredible confusion of humanity because now we no longer speak the same language. And then they're scattered over the earth. And where's the sign of grace in the Tower of Babel story? There isn't one. They are divided by languages and scattered. Until when? Absolutely. Acts chapter 2. See, don't miss that. Acts chapter 2, an amazing thing happens. There's, there's this incredible curse that falls upon humanity at the Tower of Babel, but that is completely redeemed. The, the grace comes on the day of Pentecost when the Scriptures say that there are dwellers from everywhere in Jerusalem for, for, the, Passover, for the Pentecost, for, for the holiday. There are... Uh, Persians and Medes and dwellers from Mesopotamia and, and all through that list. But, but what happens on that day? The Holy Spirit comes. And everybody hears the gospel proclaimed in their own language. All of a sudden, the Holy Spirit reunites humanity. There is this new humanity formed right here in the Spirit, and the church represents that new humanity. Do you see that? What God was trying to do from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, what God was trying to do with a covenant with Noah, what was undone at the Tower of Babel, God finally is able to, to restore at Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit comes, suddenly there is It's a possibility now, once more, for for a new humanity united in the Spirit. So this new humanity, it's a new kind of community. It's not based on necessarily a a unity of of, of ethnicity or race or even language. It's a unity in the Spirit. And this is what God intends for the entire world. This is what God is doing for the world, and it's represented here in, in the birth of the church. All barriers erased. Here we are Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, a province of Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, dwellers of Mesopotamia, Cretans, and Arabs. All of us hear these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things God has done. So r- remember, this is that. The then is now. What they were is what we are. We are that new humanity. We have a unity in the spirit. We don't all come from the same place, but we speak the same language in the spirit. You understand? This is what the church is. This is how the church is born. And 3,000, right, right off the bat, 3,000 people responded to that message. It's beautiful. Now, quickly, just to wrap up, I want us to go to verses 42 through 47 and just talk a bit about what makes the church. I see seven ingredients. Now, excuse me, when we talk about the 2020 vision and church planting, I'll often refer to this passage because you see right here, this is the church. If you boil it down to seven essential ingredients, you find them right here. So if you're ever trying to decide, well, what is a church? Or if we plant a church, what does that look like? Well, it looks like this. There are seven things that must be present in order to call your little group a church. You understand? And if these are missing, you may have something good. It might be a ministry. It might be a mission. But it can't be a church without these seven things. So let's talk about what makes a church. And what's the first ingredient? It says, that day there were added about 3,000 in all. All the believers devoted themselves to apostles' teaching, fellowship, sharing in meals, and to prayer. In verse 47, each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. What would you say is the first thing that makes a church people getting saved? It's evangelism. People get saved. It's evangelism. Now, there are probably a lot of people who want to plant churches these days, but they want to plant churches without doing evangelism. And and what you do, you just start a new church, and then you try to uh, invite people who already go to other churches to come join your church. And and okay, do that all you want, but I'm really not interested in that. I don't see why we would waste all that time and money to to form a new church just so people bored in everybody else's churches could have a new place to come get bored, you know? New churches are for new converts. A church begins and ends. The whole thing is about evangelism. It's about people coming to Christ. Two old farmers, two old friends met at the John Deere store a couple of weeks ago, had a conversation like farmers will have. One guy said, you still farming? Somebody said, yeah, still farming. I said, really? Um, how's your wheat doing? He said, well, I didn't put out any wheat this year. so no wheat? Why didn't you plant wheat? He said, was, you know, we, it seems like we just always have a cold snap anymore in the early spring, and I, just, I didn't want to lose a whole crop at the beginning of the year, n- no wheat. Okay, okay. Looks like it's going to be a good year for corn, though. It's going to be a good year for corn. His buddy said, mm, I'm not doing corn. I'm not going to do any corn. So said, why not corn? Corn blight. Corn blight. I've been reading about corn blight. Buddy said, hmm, well, what are you going to do, alfalfa? I said, I ain't doing no alfalfa. I feel like the bottom's about to drop out of alfalfa. Farmer said, well, what are you going to do all year? His buddy said, I'm going to play it safe. When is a farmer not a farmer? When he's not doing any farming. You understand? And when is a church not a church? When it's not doing any farming. When it's not planting any seeds. When it's not receiving any harvest. The seeds we plant, the harvest that we reap, it's evangelism. it's, It's people getting saved. Now, now, I remind you, there's a lot of exciting things that happen at Woodburn Baptist Church, but we don't have enough people getting saved. I don't know another way to say it. It, it. it destroys my heart that for all of the resources we put into all of our ministries, we don't see enough people getting saved. It's not quite the return that you would expect with all of the you know, dog and pony show we have going here evangelism is the key ingredient. It is what makes a church a church. It is our purpose, and it's not a good sign for us that more people aren't getting saved. It's it's not a good sign. Next, the Scripture says, all the believers devoted themselves to the uh, uh, apostles' teaching. There is this commitment to the Word that is ingredient to the church, a, a commitment to the Word of God. Now, remember, at, at this particular moment, they don't even have the New Testament. So, they're getting together. They're reading their Jewish Testament, the, the Old Testament, and this is the Word, but they're committed to teaching. They, they, they go deep into the Word, and as you notice, all through the book of Acts, they continue to go back to the Old Testament, and they read it in the way I've been saying that We must read the book of Acts. They read it in in, in the way where they say that this is that, then is now. What they were then, we are now. They read the Old Testament and they understand that this is the story of God's people. And if we're going to have what they had, we've got to do what they did. They read the word of God as, as instructions for life. You understand, it's not just a book to give us knowledge, although we need good biblical knowledge, but we're not supposed to be just smart Bible people. Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. In Acts chapter 1, when the disciples are talking to Jesus, they say, is, is now when you're going to establish your kingdom, are you going to do that now? And Jesus says, that is really not for you to know, but you will receive power When the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses, understand how Jesus shifts that emphasis? In other words, being his followers, being his church is not about knowing something. It's not power to know something. It's power to do something. So when you read Scripture, this commitment to the word is not just a commitment to to learning a lot and getting really Bible smart. It is a commitment to obey every word that comes from the mouth of God. So commitment to the word, number two. Keep going. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A couple of things there. There's just commitment to one another. There's a commitment to one another. It's, it's, it's fellowship. That that's the word, but we've almost worn that word out. You can't even say fellowship without getting hungry for a fried chicken in Kentucky. We've kind of worn the word out where it almost doesn't mean anything, fellowship. You know, come out for food, fun, and fellowship, you know, as if those three are, are in this list. What is fellowship? Well, it's, it's friendship. I know you've got friends all over the place, but, but let's at least start there. It's, it's more than friendship, but it's not less than friendship. When you get together as God's people, you should feel that you're worshiping and serving and and pouring out your heart together with friends. It's, It's more than friendship, I'll grant you that, but it's not less than friendship. And too often our relationships, our commitment to one another in the church has been something less than friendship. It's been something less than friendly. But it's at least friendship. It's at least the same kindness and goodness and patience that you show with people outside the church. I mean, but when we get together, because we share the same spirit, it should be infinitely more than that. The love, the sharing that we have should be much, much deeper. But it's sort of hammered together with ordinary things. It says they did what? They, they shared meals and they prayed. Now remember, I said that to have what they had, we're going to do what they did. So, what this church needs, and this is not a joke, we need more eating and praying. Anybody in? We need more eating and praying. I think our church is weaker right now at this moment because we don't eat and pray together enough. We need that fellowship. We need the table fellowship. There's just something about eating together, and it's amazing, and it's simple, it's human, but it's also spiritual. This is what they did. We don't do enough of it because we're too busy. In other words, we're a church, but we don't have time for fellowship. I mean, I know, we're all just lucky you got here tonight. You you know, you you fly in for, for an hour of worship. If it goes over, your head's exploding because you got so much to do. No, there's nothing more important than investing in relationships with one another. We need one another. We need to eat and pray together. We need to get back to where you actually shared meals together. And that doesn't mean just when, you know, the church plans a big get-together. This is your life and my life. They just sort of did this in their homes. Understand? Peter didn't have to put it in the bullets. You know, having a potluck next Sunday night, you know, after the temple, you know, we're all going to go Chick-fil-A together. You know, not necessarily, although I'm sure they did go to Chick-fil-A This is just a spontaneous way of life in the spirit. You open your home. You invite people to your house. You you take people out. You you invest in relationships. Well, ain't nobody got time for that, Brother Tim. No, you got to understand. We have to make time for this. This is the, this is the spiritual life. This is what it looks like. It looks like time for people. You got to make time for one another. And the same way we talk about tithing, where you, you set apart the, the part that belongs to God, you set that apart first. Most of us really need to change the way we approach our lives so that we set aside time for people first. You set aside time for people first. First. And then you find time for all the other things that you feel like are so important. People are important. And in the body of Christ, there's really nothing so important as this commitment to one another, to fellowship, to eating, to, to, to praying together. Yeah, Claude? Right. They knew everything about the lives of each other. They knew where there was a need. They knew where the problems were coming up. They And they empathized with them so strongly that they would pull out of their pocket whatever they had to to help that other. Person. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a much deeper kind of relationship than we, most of us, ever have known in our entire lives. Yeah, this deep knowledge and, and love of one another. There is no place in the New Testament where a church is described where the people don't know and love each other, which is probably a dangerous sort of. Um, charge against many, many churches these days where people walk in and out of the door like they're strangers. You have to know each other. You have to love each other. You have to have baptism in the Lord's Supper. We call these ordinances, but they're very, very important. I love everything that our church can do online, and I love the idea that we can almost have a church online, but we really can't for this simple reason. We can't baptize and share the Lord's Supper online. It just doesn't work. There's no way to do that, and I think that's intentional. The body of Christ needs to gather, and the body of Christ gathers in, in these particular moments to remember Him, to incorporate and reenact these signs of our salvation, and they are meant to be personal, and they are meant to be flesh to flesh, face to face. The baptism and the Lord's Supper are, are critical, and both of these are listed here as, as ingredient to the church. Notice what it says, a deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles before many miraculous signs and wonders, and all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. There is this sense of regular meeting, regular meeting. It's, it's a discipline. Now, it doesn't say how often. It doesn't say Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, or you're going to hell. It, it doesn't say that. But the scriptures do emphasize this importance of not forsaking meeting together. We need one another. Probably once a week I run across somebody who says, Brother Tim, you know, I I know Jesus and I love Jesus, but, you know, me and Jesus got our own thing going, and I can worship Jesus on the lake, fishing, just like I can at church. And and I would just have to say, no, you can't. You, You really can't. If you can get the same experience on the bass boat that you can at church, then one or the other of those you're doing wrong. We need each other. We need the body of Christ. Worship is something that happens when individual members of the body of Christ come together, combining the gifts that we have individually. And when that comes together, we have something all together that we couldn't possibly have on our own. It's critical that we meet together. Do not forsake that. Also now, notice how very uh, from the very beginning, ingredient to the church is this giving, generous spirit. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in in, in need. They shared their meals with great joy and generosity. This giving spirit, this this culture of giving was part of the church from the very beginning. And we need that now. We need it more than ever. I'm going to talk about this quite a bit next Sunday morning. but, But we need to give. We need this culture of generosity And then last, of course, it's worship. All the while, verse 47, praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. All the while praising God. All the while in and out of the temple, it was worship, prayer, and praise. And each day, each day, the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Each day. Each day. So that means Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Every day people just kept on getting saved. Okay. What that tells me is that the most of the people getting saved were getting saved in response to something other than the apostles teaching when they were all together. Understand? It didn't say that every time they had church, there's people at the altar getting saved. That's not what it says. It says every day. So that means when the people scattered, When the people went back home, they lived lives on mission in such a way where their lives just continued to bring more and more people to Christ. I mean, how else can you explain the fact that people get saved by the thousands? Because you have members of the church who live their lives in such a way where they continue to tell what Jesus has done. They continue to be living proof that the power of the Spirit has come, and their lives attract people, bring people to Jesus, so that you can say, the Lord just added to the number every single day. That's what we're lacking, y'all. It's not that we don't have enough people getting saved on Sunday. We don't. But we don't have nearly enough people getting saved on Monday and, and, and Tuesday. You've heard me say, it breaks my heart that we don't have a lot of people getting saved at this altar. But the real problem is that we don't have anybody getting saved at your coffee table. When they're getting saved at your coffee table, that's when the church is being the church. That's when the Holy Spirit's power is finally beginning to be engaged. Do you understand? Every day people get saved. That means they're getting saved in response to God's people being God's people. The church is being the church. And the church is the church on mission every day of the week, everywhere they go. Do you see that? Do you understand that? I guess it remains to be seen. The scripture says that people were in awe. I and mean, when people saw the church, they were in awe. What was it that was so awesome? Of course, the message of the gospel, the signs and wonders of the apostles, but more than that, it just seems to be this life that they lived, this life rooted deep in the love of God, this love that they shared for each other, that they say that in those days people just marveled, my, how they love each other. I I wish that when people would come in and out of this church, they would first of all see our love for God, but then they would be just in awe of our love for each other and our, our love for the world. If one of the great needs of the church is that we would have the power to understand how high and deep and long and and low is the love of Christ, then, then surely His love should be one of the things that people see and feel and understand about us. Maybe we really pray that this church develops roots that go down deep into the love of God so that that love begins to change the way we relate to each other and change the way we go out into the world. We've been in church today, but we are the church. Make no mistake. And now at the end of a Sunday, we scatter. We go into the world. This is how it happens. And your life is a life on mission. And while I may be called to preach just like you, I am called to tell tomorrow what Jesus has done for me. Go. Go and do not be silent. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, rain down. Rain down. Oh, comforter and friend, how we need your touch again. Holy Spirit, rain down. That spirit that exploded into the world on that Pentecost day. That spirit that exploded into the hearts of people who immediately rushed into the streets and began to preach in in multiple languages the good news of God in Christ. That, That spirit who made them such powerful witnesses. That spirit that day that came with such a mighty windstorm. That spirit now, Lord Jesus, it lives in us. It lives In us, the same Spirit, this is that, then is now. We are now what they were then, and it is the very same Spirit. So Spirit, give us power. Spirit, set our hearts on fire. Loosen our tongues that tomorrow we might find some language to tell somebody something about the power of Jesus in our own hearts, the difference he made. Oh God, if we were to leave this house and be your witnesses, then make our lives living proof that the church is here, that the Spirit is powerful, and that Jesus lives, that there is forgiveness in the name of Jesus, that there's power. Jesus, we've been here for nearly 150 years. It's not so much that we're waiting on your Spirit, Lord. Truth of the matter is, your Spirit is waiting on us. Help us to take hold of the power that is available to us. Help us to engage that power in mission, in the world, into our lives, Lord, which we will join tomorrow. At work, at school, at home, make us, Lord, to be living proof. Help us to live lives on mission in the name of Jesus and the power of the Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name, but for the sake of the world. Amen.